Hello, everyone, and welcome to the World Class Stand podcast. Our special guest today is former Rangers first team coach and also part of the City Football Group, Dr. Kerry Bowley. We'd like to thank all our subscribers for helping us reach our first milestone. So thank you for subscribing. And if you're not already subscribed, make sure you hit that subscribe button. If you enjoy our content, leave us a like. And if you want to get involved in the debates, drop a comment in the comment section. Also, we have our store. And if you want to support us by buying some merch, grab yourself a mug, a hoodie, or a t-shirt from our store below, and it'll help support the channel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the World Class Stand podcast. Our special guest today is Dr. Kerry Bowley. Thank you for coming to the show. Thank you for having me. No worries. So um, the first question we'd like to ask our guests is, what exactly is a world-class player and what would your definition be? <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one, right? It's one that everyone kind of deliberates over. I think it's very opinion-led, but if I yeah. was to give some things for me, it's about being probably the top 5 or 10% of what you do, but not just doing it, sustaining it. And I think that's the difference for me when you talk about the world-class players. They not only reach a level, but they sustain it over a number of years. Um, so I'd go probably top 10% in their position. Yeah. Um, and that gives you an idea of the type of, of players that you talk about. Um, yeah, it's not an easy thing to achieve, I don't think, world class. Any yeah. current players in the Premier League that sort of reach that level at the um, moment? Well, I, th I think you'd have, to, you'd have to look at some of City's guys. So when you think yeah. about people like Carl Walker and the level that he's yeah. played at as a, as a right back, for example... Um, and sustained that for a number of years, not only at Spurs, where he was still decent and probably one of the best in the league, but then to go to City. And and the other bit, I, I suppose, I didn't mention in the initial definition, is being able to adapt mm -hmm. and what he's had to do to play under the, the way that Pep plays with his fullbacks is very, very different to yeah. what he did at Spurs, where he was traditionally a bomber. Do you up mean and down. inversion? Inversion, yeah. managing yeah. the ball in tight areas. Yeah. Um, man-marking in the way that they man-mark sometimes and they leave it with a two and a three at the back, things like that, and being able to adapt to that. And then also, like, you look at last year on the run to the Champions League final and you see the players that he's marking. Um, and when you look at the Madrid game in particular, um, and you had arguably the most informed winger playing against him, yeah. um, who probably didn't get a sniff, if we're honest, across those two legs. And a lot of that was down to the way that Carl Walker played against him and um, and what he did. So... So I think you'd look at someone like that for sure. Um, you'd have to say he would be up there. Mo Salah is probably an obvious yeah. one, right? He's probably one of yeah. the standout yeah. ones now. Um, done it over a number of years and you know, continues to hit double figures plus in both goals and assists every season. Yeah. That takes some doing, to be fair. Um, Kane would have been the obvious other one before he left for Bayern. Um, to win a trophy. For, for me, <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. But for me, he's the, he's the best centre-forward in the world. And the yeah. most complete in the world. Yeah, goal scoring, everything that he can do, link and play, or uh, all of that. I think he's he's uh, he's up there. So you're going Kane over Haaland? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For those reasons, well, for me, yeah. yeah. Kane's yeah. passing yeah. game, his assists are phenomenal. I will say, yeah. Kane's they've come over. on in the last two or three seasons even better as well. So. But I think um, Haaland's a freak of nature. <laughs> you know, some of the goals he scores and what he's able to do and how he's able to adapt in the penalty box is like he probably scores goals that Kane doesn't score. Yeah, but. Kane in terms of efficiency in front of goal, but also the other stuff in terms of link play and, you know, assists, being able to drop deep, being able to, well, when I look at him in the last two years at Spurs before going, everything went through him. Everything good about Tottenham was about him um, in terms of the way that he played, what he saw, the passes he could see to find other people, all of that kind of stuff, and still go and score the goals he scored. That's, that takes him doing. So, uh, yeah, he would have been, been the top one for me. And then 
probably my favourite player at the minute to watch is probably Phil Foden. And you can say that, yeah. Yeah. Just unbelievable yeah. talent. Um, <laughs> and of course, you've still got Kevin De Bruyne, and you can't dismiss yeah. him a world class. So I'm not going to be able to mention all the ones in the no, Premier there's League. There's a lot yeah, to choose yeah. from. There is, a lot, there but they would be the ones that would like really stand out for me yeah. as being the leaders in terms of um, what they do and where they De- play. Great. Definitely. And one, one of the things that we talk about is longevity. Obviously, Haaland, he's still only very young. Got plenty of career left ahead of him. For a world class player, do, is there a minimum time period? Would you say that they have to prove themselves over um, to get that kind of world class status? Yeah, good question. Um, multiple seasons. It's hard to put a number on it because I think every position is different. So when we look at like player development from a goalkeeper's perspective, they probably start to play first team football a lot later than yeah. some other positions yeah, yeah. maybe um, they hit their peak later we know that so I think it's hard to put an exact number on it because it's so individual and then the other thing like when you think about a player like Kane how many times he went out on loan before he actually played consistently yeah. in Tottenham's first team so it's very very difficult to be able to find a number but I think sustaining it over multiple seasons you know three plus seasons is probably okay my kind of start point to say actually this, yeah. this guy's at that level because there's a lot of talk about Bellingham at the moment and he is unbelievable. Yeah. But let's see three, four, five years what, what it's like because he reminds, he's, he's going to be, I think he's going to be better and more impactful but it reminds me a bit of Deli Ali's story and mm. he was kind of on those fringes but then fell away very quickly and I'm not suggesting that's going to happen with Jude Bellingham at all um, but let's give him that opportunity first before we overhype yeah. him because yeah, definitely. we jump on things very quickly as fans <laughs> and as media yeah. and whatever else. We jump on it very quickly, yeah. but we also drop them very quickly when, when they have yeah. a bad game. So It is easy to get carried away and get excited. Um, Bellingham has been absolutely fantastic for Real Madrid and I, he did, you know, I think uh, we did mention this before on a, on a previous podcast. Uh, it seemed a strange decision retiring his shirts at uh, Birmingham when he was like 18 years old. Um but, you know, what he's gone on to do, you, you can arguably, he's got one of the best futures ahead of him. But there's variables in there, such as injuries and stuff like that. You don't know how it's going to pan out, but the future looks very bright for him. Yeah. Okay, so a um, bit of a walk through your career um, and what you've been up to and some just experiences of, of who and where you've worked and, yeah, a bit of a, a walk through there. Okay, well, one of my first jobs out of uni was with you, so uh, <laughs> you might recall that in, uh, in RCT 560. It was actually my second second job because I was in the Vale of Glamorgan briefly. Um, so that was mainly around extracurricular activity um, from a sport perspective. Uh, and I think real good grounding in the fact that, one, you're trying to work with disengaged, which is a lot more difficult than working with people that are naturally yep. engaged. So when you work in the game then, more often than not, players, coaches and the staff around football are quite engaged in what they're doing. So there's a lot of lessons in there. But also the part around like multiple stakeholders. So you have your stakeholders in a school, you have your stakeholders in in a council and governing body and whatever else. So learning how to work with all of them. And then you do without forgetting the teams that you work in 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 a local level and a regional level. So I think a lot lot of good grounding in terms of in terms of that role. Um, then it was off to the FA, so work governing body um, it was a launch of a coach mentoring program, mainly around grassroots coaches. And I was fortunate to manage the Southwest as a region, so set that up really from scratch, uh, recruit all of the team, manage the, the mentoring team, and, and obviously coach education goes with it, and also some coaching in the girls' national team structures. So that, that was really interesting. Come back to USW, led a football degree, 
um, supported and co-wrote some of the, the master's degree with Gav Chesterfield. Um, three years or so here, worked with some of the academies alongside it in terms of consultancy roles and that kind of stuff, but also across multiple sports. So one of the things I wanted to do was go into environments that I wasn't so familiar and challenge myself around, right, how do I adapt here? How do I get to understand like the things I'm really big on, language, um, and how important terminology and language is in a high-performance environment? So going into netball with the Welsh national team was was one of them. And I always remember uh, Nia was obviously one of the players who played football as well. So I used to speak to Nia in football. She talked to me in netball, and that's how I'd understand the, the language that I needed to use when I went to work with the players. It was it was as simple as that. Um, so that that was a really interesting journey: table tennis, basketball, um, so multiple sports that I worked with coaches and players from that um, from that time. Then on to City Football Group, which was a phenomenal opportunity. Um, just over three years with City Football Group, we were five clubs, I think, when I started. Thirteen when when I finished. Um, I'm mainly around like methodology, recruiting coaches, developing coaches, working with academies, um, education for scouts, range of things really. The the role that you go into, it starts as something and then it kind of just morphs into many different things for what's needed. Um, so were you across the entire portfolio of clubs yeah. or were you more specifically with a few of them and then dipped in and no, out? Cr- across them all, but obviously less work with Man City. Right. Yeah. You know, Pep didn't really need this Welsh boy to come in and, and help him with with what Man City first team looks like. But the biggest thing for me was not to take what Pep does around the world because he's an, he's a, a kind of brand, if you like, in himself. Yeah. And and I don't believe in one, copy and paste, but two, you, you have to protect an element of what Pep is and, and who he is because arguably he'll have to work after City again. Um, and it's not really fair to do that and download everything that he does and, yeah. and share it. But it was more aligning to, so via Cheeky mainly, the director of football, um, anything that I kind of observed, I'd put into some sort of framework or approach for the rest of the clubs. And I'd always share it back before delivering it so that they understood what was coming because naturally they're the top of the tree. So if anything someone sees anywhere else, they're going to ask them. So I wanted them to be aware of what it was, um, but also try to be respectful in that way. But all the other clubs, yes. Um, Recruiting the coaches, I think nearly every club before I left, bar in two, because they were too new in. Um, We'd done all the recruitment for coaches and technical staff for some of them even sporting directors, some of them even academy directors. Um, And yeah, it was about all of them, every every single club, watch them every week, work with the coaches every week. Um, It was... It was a fascinating journey, to be fair. That was, that was class. And then through that, I met Gio um, and ended up at Rangers for, for a short period of time, shorter than what I'd hoped when I went mm-hmm. there, shorter than the plan yeah. when it was sold to me, but that's how it works in this yeah. game. Um, yeah. Incredible experience again. Um, and that, for me, was more about put yourself in the firing line because I'd always kind of ridden this roller coaster with the city coaches, but I was never in the kind of spotlight of if it, if it goes wrong, you're going to get it. If you're going to get the pressure from the fans, you're going to get that. If they lost, you know, I felt it and I, I always wanted them to, to do well. But I was never accountable, really, for them losing. Yeah. I was accountable for the way they played, not for the outcome more in terms of what I was questioned on. So um, so that was about getting that experience to make you more credible in the future so that when you go back and recruit and manage and develop coaches in the future, you've been there and you know what it's like um, yeah. to be under that pressure and... Let me tell you, it was pressure up there. I bet. Um, yeah. um, so, uh, that was probably, yeah. like, looking at your CV beforehand, that was, like, 
probably really stand out, like, you know, Rangers, massive, massive club. Yeah. But also, as you say, City, obviously big, big club as well. But being the first team coach at a club like Rangers, uh, massive, a pressure cooker environment. Um, and if you're not top, you're last. It feels like from the outside looking in. Um, but going into that opportunity, that must have been a really proud moment for you, stepping out on the turf yeah. and just like you know feeling like you know you, you've uh, you know you've, you've got your first big opportunity. Yeah, I think I think it's like it's one of them where it was never the plan to be in a first team environment because I, I didn't really plan that way and I was more thinking about technical director. But it was yeah, proud moment for a number of things. One because it was Geo that asked me. Um, and obviously he'd spent six months with us on a secondment after Feyenoord and seen enough value in the stuff that I did to ask. That's one. You know, or you think you know, how big Rangers is when you grow up in the UK and the old firm and, and everything about the SPL. And, you know, my hero growing up, my first one was Gaza because he played for Spurs, but then he also played for Rangers. So I'd always had this kind of affinity to them. And there was two lads that lived on the street above me that were from Scotland and were massive Rangers fans growing up. So they always used to tell me how big the club was and teach me loads of songs and all that kind of stuff. So you, you kind of had this affinity to them. Um, and of course, yeah, they, you, you look at them and, and what they are historically and everything. It's a huge, huge club. But honestly, you don't appreciate what it is until you go in there. Yeah. So I, I thought like... Going through City, we had so many different clubs, so many different problems, so many different challenges. You think you've almost, I don't want to say seen it all, because that sounds really arrogant, but you almost think you've come across as many things as you yeah. can. You walk into that environment and it's, it's totally different. Um, but yeah, an amazing, amazing football club, amazing environment to be in. And that bit around arriving, I, I probably, probably wasn't for me, but it was probably for other people around me. So like my kids, daughters especially, because the little one, Boys too young, but the daughters especially, that was like a big deal for them. Um, probably mum and dad, the kind of the arrival of getting to that level. And that is all then some of the stuff that you lose immediately when you leave the club. So that drive yeah. home from Glasgow after leaving the club, is probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, it's probably the toughest bit, but it comes with the territory. You know, the, I've been there. The, the the best thing was probably, you know, we, we managed to do something in terms of qualifying for Champions League before yeah, I yeah. went, which yeah. was something that the club had been trying to do for a long time. So there's that moment. Um, but yeah, it was an incredible opportunity. Um, one I'll always be grateful for and I'll always support the club. So yeah. I am a Rangers fan and we we still support them in our house. So well, that, that's, that's how we are now. Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't want to live, lose half our subscribers in Scotland, so we'll uh, <laughs> yeah. comment on that one. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's, that's perfectly fine. Okay, we're going to ask uh, now, who's your biggest influence on your coaching style? Well, um, I think I, I'm not, I'm not going to go down the road of a single person because I think lots of things shape you and lots of people shape you. My earliest influence was definitely my dad. So dad was an yeah. A-licensed coach <laughs> throughout my whole kind of time growing up. Um, and always worked at a decent level as a coach. Did he work at Merthyr Town, was that yeah, right? Yeah, he worked at Merthyr Town. Yeah. But like before that, even when I was very young, before the Welsh Premier League and even at the start of it, Breck and Corries were one of the best okay. clubs in, in the division just below. So they, they're a really good level. Um, so he'd always been around it and he was my first coach. So it always has that impact as well. A little bit of pressure because of the type of character and, and managing your son. But at the same time, like he, he was probably ahead of what a lot of coaches were at that time and the way they thought about the game and things. Probably should have done more, 
but didn't because he stayed loyal to the area and he was incredibly passionate about giving young kids an opportunity. So developed academy systems and development centres in Brecon and focused more on that when he could have gone off and done other things. But you know, that, that happened. So he had a big influence. But then when you think about when you go through your career, like for different reasons. So, you know, some psychologists have had a really big influence. So Ian Mitchell, or Dr. Ian Mitchell, I should say, but Mitch has had a huge impact on me. Um, I knew him when he played at Merthyr when I was a very young kid, then went to UIC, as it was then, now Cardiff Met, of course. And then he supervised my uh, PhD. He was director of studies before he went to Swansea. So he's had a really big impact, although not so much on-field coaching. He did coach me, but more from the psychology bit. He's had a huge impact on me. Um, Ian Jeffries, another guy who worked here, actually, taught me at um, FE College, but more from a strength and conditioning perspective. And so you can get an idea here about the way I view the role yeah. of a coach. Yeah. Yeah. It's the yeah. multidiscipline bit. So he had a huge, huge impact on me from from a kind of strength and conditioning perspective and physical preparation of players. And then when you when you walk into the group, it's hard not to be kind of inspired by some of the people that are there. So you know, Pep's the obvious one, and everyone always asks yeah. me about Pep. But um, but you know, you, you always kind of look to him and look at what he's doing. I I do it now. I try and watch City and try and second guess what he's going to do next. And, <laughs> You, know, you can never second-guess him because the guy's an absolute genius um, yeah. in terms of what he sees. Yeah. And his impact for me was more, when I was at games, you watch him and within three or four minutes of kickoff, he's whistling and he's changing something. And like that, for me, the best coaches in the world are the ones that can see the chaos in the, through the chaos in the game. Um, anyone can put a practice on out there and plan a practice. But when it comes to actually, can you see it in the game and can you impact a game? He's the ultimate. I think he's the best yeah. of the best when it comes to that stuff. So him, there's a guy, Eric Mumbart, French guy, but worked globally around the group. Um, he's like one of the grandfathers of the game for me, but I used to love talking about methodology with him. And being French, he was very different in the fact that our style isn't really what you associate with French football. No disrespect to them, but yeah. it's quite different. It's the physicality and power, speed and that kind of stuff, whereas we build up a little bit more. So he went against the grain a little bit of what Coach Ed and, and coaching was in France. But yeah, and I still still speak to him now. Brian Eastick is another one, British guy, um, who's been around all the FA, lots of academies, first teams. So, you know, a lo lot older than me, uh, generationally older than me. But just an ability to kind of pick his brains and, and challenge thinking and that kind of stuff. So those guys, a lot of influence. And then you have obviously the ones that you work with every day. So Michelle in Girona, Liam Manning, who's now at Bristol City, um, worked with him every day for quite some time. Des Buckingham, who's now at Oxford United, yeah. worked with him for a number of years. Patrick Isnobo, that was at Melbourne and went to Twitter. Yeah. This is, yeah, I could I could name nearly all of them in terms of that, that Did influence. you cross paths with Arteta? I can't remember when he went to he Arsenal. Was, yeah, he was there... Um, he was at City as Pep's assistant when I arrived. Yeah. Um, had a couple of conversations, but nothing major. My, my main contact at City was always cheeky. So everything I did was always via cheeky. Um, and that, that's for a number of reasons, really. One is to protect the environment there because, you know, they, they, they're trying to win everything. They're playing every three days. So last thing they need is someone else that's like asking questions and wanting something or, or whatever. Um, so you respect their time in, in what they're doing. But also because him and Pep, and I've said this on podcasts before, if you put them in two separate rooms and went into each room and, and asked them the same questions, you'd get almost the same answer. Right. 
that's how aligned they are and how they see the game and what they're looking for and, and everything. So it's no surprise that they're able to recruit the best players and, and help them to settle into what they're trying to achieve there. Um, so I always went through him and he was always brilliant with his time, took me to sessions and I always went with him. So we went to watch first team that way, had the conversations with the first team staff, but he knew the right moment for that. Whereas when I reach out to them, not knowing exactly what their day is like every day, um, because I'm not involved in it every day, it's hard to pick the right moment. And the last yeah. thing you want to do is pick the wrong moment with a coach because there's so much else going on um, and the pressures are at different moments. So, Yeah, right. de- definitely. Um, so um, which coach do you, you... You mentioned, obviously, Pep, that, uh, that you admire, but um, is there a specific someone in the game that you'd like to spend a few um, sessions just shadowing just to get more insights into, like, you know, and picking maybe different styles Obviously, um, you know, yeah. there's, there's quite a lot of great coaches at the minute. Um, is there one specific you like? Uh, yeah, I'd love to go and kind of sit under his learning tree and kind of pick his brains a bit. Wow, one specifically. <laughs> um, it doesn't have to be a specific probably, one. Or. Probably De Zerbi yeah, at okay. this moment. He's done a fantastic job yeah. at Brighton, yeah. hasn't he? And, and mainly because he'd be very different to me in terms of, like, culturally... Um, you know where he grew up and the experience he's had up to now, coming to a foreign country. Whereas you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm like all the other Premier League managers, by the way, far from it. But when you when they're more British or they've been in Britain for an extended period of time, then they become yeah. more kind of like the norm in this country, and you start to see their trends a lot more. Whereas I think with Deserbi, he's still quite fresh in, although he's been in a year or so, um, and he's the one that has kind of taken a style and probably taking it up a notch, or probably unfair to say up a notch from what Graham Potter did, because I think they would have been on that trajectory anyway, but he's changed something in there that's just given them something a little bit different. Um, that's yeah. what I'd probably yeah, say. They're playing fantastic football, uh, well, for the last 18 months. Um, they've got some results, haven't they? Uh, Brighton, and, well, they're going to be a safe Premier League side again at, yeah. yeah, for the future, for another two, three, four seasons. I think yeah. the, the thing that's benefit Brian as well, they've had a long-term vision, so right back to when they was playing at the Withe Dean and they had Gus Poirier in charge. They always wanted to go for that fresh uh, coach from outside the box. And um, they helped progress them through the divisions. You know, they was, that, they was in uh, division old Division 3 and they've gone right up into the Premier League. And then they've kind of upgraded, improved. They remind me a little bit like Brentford as well, the recruitment style. Yep. Um, so, yeah, they, they kind of... Um, they are constantly building, picking top coaches and... If you was outside of the, the, the coaching environment, and when you bring in someone like Roberto De Serbi, a lot of people wouldn't have known him from the English game, and he's just come in and he's like kicked it on another level after selling a lot of their marquee players as well. Yeah, yeah. They've lost a lot of players to Liverpool, Chelsea, and then they just keep on bringing in. It almost seems like a conveyor belt of talent. So um, I would be interested to see what goes into behind the. Um, you know the the, uh, the inner workings and how they identify players and stuff. So, um, yeah, um, that's that's a that's a good one. Um, I, I think, I think alongside manager. City, they've probably got the most ingrained style. In ter- and when I say ingrained, more in terms of all disciplines supporting that style of play. So even their data modelling, which they started when they were in the football league all the way through, they've got a real idea of what they're looking for from a data perspective, as well as then coaching, sports science, and everything else that goes with it. Um, and you can't just turn this on overnight, can no. you? This takes no. a decades. I'd and, and that's the hardest bit. Yeah, that's the hardest bit. Time. People want to do it until they realise a lot of the time what's involved, yeah. and then it's like, yeah, yeah, 
we'll, we'll scrap that now at the first hurdle. Yeah. And you have to go through so many difficulties, and they did. You know, even trying to get into the Premier League, they fell short when they arguably should have got promoted the year before they yeah. did. Yeah. Right. When they were a long way clear at one point and then fell away. And and but they've also got a very good CEO there in Paul Barber. Um, visionary in terms of approach, understands the game, which I think is really important, but also understands when to step away and allow other people to do their work. Um, and he's been great since, you know, he, and I shout out because since I've been out of like full-time work, he's always been available um, and always given me time. So, you know, I really appreciate that as of other people, but he's always been um, really generous with his time and, and kind of support and, and guidance. So, great. So, just going back to your time at Rangers and specifically the Champions League um, campaign there. Um, what well, a great experience, I imagine, that would be travelling to all these great stadiums, Napoli, Ajax, Anfield. Um, what you qualified, it was, you know, that was brilliant for Rangers, but it, it was obviously a, a tough ask, wasn't it, after that point uh, against those yeah. clubs. So just a, yeah, a bit of an insight into well, the, the experience for you, and as I say, going to those stadiums and then the challenge. And what did you learn, I guess, from that experience so bittersweet obviously the sweet is that we qualified because we had to go through quite a difficult qualifying campaign yeah. and you see this year how difficult that was when you see like they played PSV again this year with a different outcome um, and you know some would argue that this year's team's better some could argue that last year's team's better well, it doesn't really matter but you know like to Cody Gakpo and then we're in the side at the time um, and on paper they should really be getting through uh, PSV should be beating us so I think that euphoria of that bit um, and the challenge, the tactical challenge there, and then you think you're getting somewhere because you qualify, but then you, when you realise, like when you step into that environment and you know, if there's one thing we could change, it would be something around that Champions League about getting points in the Champions League. But at the same time, when you look at the group, you go actually, at that moment, you know, Ajax were an established Champions League club um, and had been in the semi-final only a few years ago, um, spending considerable money. I think at that time it was around, you have to spend around 120 million over five years consecutively to finish third. So that gives you an idea of how much these clubs are spending. And then you have Liverpool, three finals in five years. Um, They don't need much of an introduction, even though they were a a little bit off in, in Premier League terms last season. And then Napoli were arguably the most formed team it was Pre- the best World Napoli Cup. side in, t- in the past 20 yeah. years and, and you, went on to win the league as well. So You could say that without the World Cup break, they arguably would have been favourites to win the Champions League because at that time they were yeah. unbelievable. And I think the World Cup break actually killed them a little bit in terms of that momentum and rhythm. Um, but when you're at a club like Rangers, all that goes out the window because you're a club that has to win. And I get that. Um, all the fans wanted you to do was win. There was nothing ever about going there to perform. It was about winning. Um, and we weren't able to do that. So that'll always, that will always be a huge regret in terms of that part. Yeah. But then what you realise is like the levelness of some of this is unbelievable. So you, you go to Anfield and just the way, it's, it's little things that you know, but it confirms for you. So like Jordan Henderson run the game. But he didn't run the game with what he did with the ball or without it. He did run the game by organising people. And when you speak to players afterwards that, you know, played at the Premier League level as well, by the way, um, and then they see that and they play against players like that, they go, actually, yeah, we can we can see what he does and what we can take from that because he literally bossed the game without needing to touch the ball in many ways in terms of just organising those around him. So I think that, that was um, incredible, seeing 
you know, you, you go to some of the best grounds, which we were fortunate to do. You know, we went to some iconic places in terms of that. But those things you don't really think about in the moment. You don't, even now to a degree, I can't even remember too much about the stadiums and things because you just don't, you just focus on what the job is. So you don't get to experience it in that way. Um, but when you look back on it and you think about the clubs you played, of, of course, there's an element of pride there. But it's hard to feel pride when when the performances or the results were where the yeah. results were, although they were key moments in every game. Yeah. Well, that, And everyone will say this, of course, but like I always go back to first home game, Napoli. We have two or three very good chances and should be ahead. And we're on top. Then we get the red card. Then they miss the pen. Then they have another pen. And they score to go 1-0. And, and with six minutes to go, it's still 1-0 and we got 10 men. And then two silly errors give the ball away on the edge of our own box and those teams punish you and that, that's the difference yeah. where you maybe get away with some of that stuff in the SPL it was like and the Liverpool game at home will always stand out because I think it was at 65 minutes it was 1-1 we have a great chance uh, 2v1 and don't take it Canate slides in and wins it they have almost the identical chance the other way Firmino scores and then they bring Salah Robertson <laughs> Uh, Jota and Thiago <laughs> off the bench and yeah. I remember looking across and, and saying to Pep Linders come on, <laughs> come on. But that, that's, that's the kind of that's yeah. the level of it that's where you want to be and that's Definitely. where they want to be that's where they need to be yeah. as a club but it's always you, when you look back at it now you've almost got to go through the bad experience being the first ones to get back in the Champions League to allow them to continue to build and hopefully in the next few years they will consistently qualify well if they win the league this year then, then they qualify. So that's that's a good start point. But hopefully they can do that consistently because that gives you the level of it, but also the financial aspect of it. It's so important for, for Scottish clubs. Um, yeah, definitely. It's, it's huge. Anything post, sort of like you said, in the heat of the moment, um, you can't really take it all in. Everything's uh, going by so fast. Anything in reflect on reflection that you think you've learned that you would do differently again or... Yeah, um, it's um, it you, the, the, the only it? one for me is, and and I kind of I've always felt it anyway. But we probably adapted or tried to adapt to give the players a better chance to compete, or so we thought. Whereas, like, if I was to really be true to what I believe in, I would just go for it in the same way every every game, yeah. and that could have led to big defeats. But then we ended up with big defeats anyway. By so, like Liverpool was our biggest one, and at home we went for it. And went one lap and was well in the game and, and doing okay. And then obviously within minutes it can just come crashing the other way. So I think it's hard to, to know exactly because the bit when you when you try to change, you have to have a certain amount of players that can adapt to change in that way. And and unless you're some of the bigger squads in the world, you don't you don't really get that. So so I think it's hard. Um the, sometimes and, and Rangers fans will hate me for saying it, they'll probably hammer me for saying it, but sometimes you have to accept where you are. And at that moment in time, we weren't at the same level as Liverpool in terms of the players that they had in their squad, the way the, way the club had been in so many Champions Leagues consecutively and finals and competing at the top end. We just weren't at the same, same level as them. Does that mean we could have performed better? Yeah, of course we could have. And there'll always be some things around that. But would we still have lost games? Probably. Um, and and I, I I can hear them now. They'll be like oh, defeatist mindset and all that. But sometimes it's just reality, right? Yeah. Yeah. Liverpool um, are not easy. Uh, Liverpool, and the players gave everything. Athlete, it's level. Players, players gave everything. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and what we also had, which you can't discount, is the number of injuries picked up from playing at that level, and they were injury sustained in games, not training. 
So you, you're asking, like, you know, Connor Goldson is one of the standouts for me. Been a real stalwart for Rangers. Top, top player was really, really important to us. Got injured chasing Nunez in the channel, uh, Ibrox, because he had to do that maybe six or seven times in half an hour, where he might do that twice in a game at most in the SPL on the weekend. It's a great point, yeah. So just those things that they're yeah. not usually expected to do at the intensity that they have to do them at can cause injury. Because you're almost like, how do you... You're training players to play a Champions League game that's the opposite of what we get in the SPL. SPL, we are at 80% of the ball most weeks, except for when you play one or two sides. Yeah. Teams sit really deep against you. So that even the movement patterns, everything that they have to do, the mindset of how they see the game, and then all of a sudden you play against Liverpool, they win the ball, they turn you around, and you're running back towards your own goal every time you lose it. That That, that is yeah, a very yeah. different it's game. Used to a style of playing. Being able to cope with that yeah. is not easy. And so we ended up with 13 first-team players injured. And then they go, ah, oh, yes, because of what you're doing in training. No, mate, because we didn't have enough time to train. We were literally recovering and playing again, recovering and playing again. It was condensed because of the World Cup, of course. Yeah. So we played every second, third day. That's yeah. that's what that's what it was for us. So we didn't get the time to rest fully, get good work into them to go again. It was always trying to do it on the run, which is the nature of the beast, right? And that's yeah. that's why yeah. you're in those that's top tournaments. Yeah, top end, Definitely. Top and that's it for this time, guys. Don't forget, if you enjoyed our content, please drop us a like. It helps support the channel. And if you're not already subscribed, make sure you hit that subscribe button to help support us and leave a comment in the comment section below. Well, that's it for this time, guys. Join us next time on part two, where we'll be talking to Kerry about the current game and all things Rangers and part of his scouting network and other topics as well. So that's it for this time, guys. Have a world-class weekend, and we'll catch you next time.